Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. Uh, the lovely Joanne, she just made some guacamole earlier today. And what's funny is, she makes a really killer guacamole for someone who's an Italian from New Jersey. She moved out two years ago out here, and she you can't find good avocados back east. Put it this way, her guacamole is so good. A few weekends ago, we went to a, a party, my friend Alejandro Patina. And Alejandro is the spokesperson for Popeye's Fried Chicken in Mexico. He's as Latino as you can get. And he said, hey, I said, what should we bring you? He goes, does your girlfriend know how to make guacamole? And she made guacamole, and it was the first thing going at the party. And I think we were like the 30% of Caucasians there, and the Latinos love her guacamole. So I had some early to get me a little energy because uh, I got a great interview today. I got uh, Tracy Guns. How you doing, Tracy? Right on, man. I'm doing great. Thanks. So now, uh, I want to talk about your career, but you, you, you drove back from Vegas last night or this morning? Sort of both. Uh, I, I leave there at about 11 p.m. after my shows, and I get home about 3 in the morning. So, morning and last night. So now, you, you're out there, you're playing in uh, the Rock Vault, right? Yeah, and we're coming to a close on Sunday, and uh, hopefully we can find a new venue. The Tropicana dropped us like a hot potato. Now, how long have you been playing with them? I mean, do you go there all the time, or does the lineup switch up? And explain to my guests what the uh, Rock Vault is. Okay, well, Rock Vault is uh, it's, it's essentially like a play, um, but with a, a live rock concert in it. Um, it's the history of classic rock from 1964 to 1984. And um, I started it in 2013, did the, the whole year of 2014, and then I got fired. And then, uh, then they asked me back. Uh, man, about almost a year ago. So I, I kind of did it for two years. And at this point, I come in every other month for two weeks. And it's great. No, no why'd they fire you? I get crazy. On stage or off stage? Or, I mean, to get fired from a rock and roll show, <laughs> classic rock is pretty badass. What did you, what did you exactly do? Did you, did you piss in a Tropicana I... or something? Or what did you do? Uh, I... I... I tricked myself into, I was losing my mind. I was there. It was originally at what was at the time the LVH, which was the old international. And we were doing it on that uh, Elvis Presley stage. So it had some magic to it. But after a year of living in the hotel, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. So I had myself exited somehow. <laughs> I figured it out and I was able to uh, uh, collect uh, a little bit of unemployment. And then uh, they asked me back and, and, uh, Doing it the way I do it now, it's it's a lot it's a lot better for your your psyche. Now, at what age you've been playing? I'm I'm guessing you've been playing music all your life. At what age did you start playing guitar, and what drove you? What brought you into dry, playing guitar? Was there any influence you, you saw, or or something that you watched on TV and said, "I want to do that"? Or was music around your house, or how did you start this whole lifelong career of being a kick-ass guitarist? Well. Um, I was sitting in the back of my, my, my mom had a boyfriend named Joel when I was six years old and, uh, I heard a whole lot of love. I was sitting in the back seat <clears throat> and when the, the middle breakdown for a whole lot of love came in, there's this theremin solo and all this like, you know, wizard of Oz music kind of going on. And I just poked my head up and said, what is this? And my mom said it was the guitar. And so I've spent my entire life trying to figure out what it was. And it wasn't the guitar. It was the theremin. So, um, I, I, you know, I figured that out actually about 25 years ago, but, um, it inspired me in a way to where 
to make a sound that affects other human beings in a, in a uncomfortable way. I wanted to do that. And, um, when I was, you know, later on that year, my, my, uh, uncle Ron, he had a guitar and an amp in his room and he taught me how to play pinball wizard by the who. And I've been completely addicted to that, you know, the guitar ever since like that has, has been my priority over any responsibility in my life, my entire life for 44 years now. So, so yeah, you're seven years old and you're playing guitar. Now, I mean, I know it grabs you, but at seven, you know how we are. We get, you know, we get distracted and we want to do other things. How right. did you start putting a plan? I mean, did you start putting your course of action when you were seven and said, I'm going to do this? Or was it something that you would leave for a little bit or come back to? Or just, I mean, and how did you stick with it? And did you take lessons or were you self-taught? I mean, I was, I was, I was pretty much self-taught. And the, the cool thing was, is this was, you know, right around 1972, 73. And there were guitar players, everybody trying to figure out, you know, Black Dog and, and uh, you know, every Hendrix song. So, like, there were older people that, that I come in contact with that would show me little bits and pieces. And um, although I loved the guitar, I had no idea really what to do with it other than to play, like, the five things I knew for a few years. And then when I was about 11... Uh, in junior high school, I was in the guitar ensemble at Bancroft Junior High School with some other really, you know, well-known guitar players now. Like who? Um, and uh, that was the, the, the cement, you know, that was, now I was understanding a little bit of music, uh, getting my technique going, and it just, you know, every little bit of information I got just made me a better player and made me understand the instrument better and I'm still on that same path you know I'm still learning stuff all the time it's 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 quite the puzzle now you're so so when you get in high school are you starting to put bands together or are you are you just chilling and still learning the craft as you said even to this day and I think anyone ever no one ever knows all the answers and when you know all the answers that means you don't know the answers exactly exactly well you know we started putting bands together in junior high school right away um, and, you know, I, I had taught my best friend at the time, Danny Tall, that didn't go to the, to my same junior high school, how to play bass. And then we had a friend from summer camp, uh, Dave Melford, who uh, played drums. And we had a little band, and we played um, Stranglehold, Mongoloid by Devo, and uh, Stairway to Heaven. That was our repertoire for about a year. All great songs, and it's funny. All cool songs. Um, cool it was a great time because... There was, um, you know, new wave and punk rock were starting, um, and we loved the B-52s as much as we loved Black Sabbath, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, we were really kind of trying to just play whatever we could kind of figure out, and by the time I was in high school, um, the, the, the band had really developed into something, and we were already writing original music. So then where do you take it from there? Do you sit there and go, okay, we're going to just start getting gigs, we're trying to get a record deal. I mean, you're, you're young, and you know when we're young, one, we have no fear. But yeah, two, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was fearless. I mean, you know, the other guys, by the time I was in high school, Rob Gardner was my drummer, and Danny Toll was still the bass player. We had a, a fella named Mike, Mike Jagos, who uh, actually passed away a couple of years. He was really an amazing singer, and uh, that eventually kind of turned into the very first L.A. Guns, but when we were in high school, um, we just played parties and, and stuff like that. And, and I don't even know if we really understood what a record deal was or anything like that. And it wasn't really until 
um, Axel joined LA Guns and Izzy was uh, my roommate somehow at my mom's house where we started taking it a little bit more seriously. Motley Crue was setting an example on the on you know at the Troubadour of you know how you could really do a big show in a small club, <clears throat> and uh, so that was kind of the first step. Was like, hey, you know, let's we can step this stuff up, and all of a sudden it went from you know sounding exactly like Aerosmith and Zeppelin to adding a little bit more teeth um, somewhere, you know, mixing you know punk rock and blues rock, and uh, you know having a really crappy attitude. Um, that ultimately led to creating kind of a new scene, you know, the post Motley Crue scene in LA. Um, and it was quite, quite an experience, man. Quite an experience. Now, now how'd you come up with the name Tracy Guns? Okay, I had a girlfriend when I was 17 named Dina, and uh, she was a Spartan Jew, and she was, uh, you know, a completely outside of my scope of realm and I was with her because she was really pretty but we didn't speak the same language at all you know and she just started calling me Mr. Guns you know for I have no idea why she just called me Mr. Guns and um, then uh, Izzy started calling me Mr. Guns and he goes you should just change your name to Tracy Guns and I'm like oh yeah that's cool you know kind of sounded like a Nikki Six kind of thing or Johnny Thunders or whatever and uh, it, it stuck you know, it, it just, it was a, a, a natural nickname. You know, I didn't go through, like, the dictionary going, oh, I, I need a cool rock name, you know what I mean? <laughs> because my two middle names would have been the best rock name. I have, uh, my middle names are Irving and Richard. So I always thought Irving Richard would be, you know, the next Keith Richard. Like, right. that would be a stage name. <laughs> but uh, Tracy Gunn stuck, and uh, it's very confusing for the passport people and, uh, you know, all that. Because I have, it's, it's now legally my name, so it's, it's, uh. It sure hung around. And, now, I, and I don't support guns, so it's very strange. Now, L.A. Guns, was that just, was it named after you because you guys from L.A., or how'd you come up with that name? Okay, well, Izzy was in Hollywood Rose, you know, with Axel when, at the same time, you know, I was 17. And uh, my band was called Pyrus, which was some Greek, you know, mythical something or other. I still don't know. Um, and, and Hollywood Rose, and it was named after Axel, you know, Axel Rose. And I said, hey, Izzy, I'm just going to I'm gonna call my band L.A. Guns if you guys are Hollywood Rose. And he goes, that's awesome. So I made a little, uh, I had a blank album cover, and I sprayed L.A. Guns on it with a stencil, like the Cheap Trick logo, three times. And that was the first L.A. Guns logo and everything. And it really was powerful. You know, it was really something. And it was the opposite of the New York Dolls. You know, it just it made a lot of sense. So you sit there, you're with the L.A. Guns, and then you, you and Axel, and you guys merge, and you're Guns and Roses. Right. Well, Axel got fired. We lived with our manager, this guy Raz, out in uh, you know one of those typical valley, you know, uh, swamp cooled uh, little houses. And Axel and him had gotten into something. I think it's because Axel tore up a London poster on stage. And and rightfully so, he had every right to do it. We were we were uh, they were opening for us, I, I think. And by the time we got on stage, all my guitars were out of tune. Izzy had seen uh, Nader do it. Axel freaked out, tore up a London poster on stage, and then our manager fired him that night on the way home. And since we all lived together, you couldn't really fire anybody. <clears throat> so I just remember, you know, we were sitting on these uh, really dank couches that we had. Uh, having a very serious conversation that, you know, I was like 18 years old 
um, about what we were going to do. And, and Axel had come up with the idea, hey, you know, since we can't be in a band together anymore because I just got fired, maybe we should just continue writing songs and then, you know, we could have our own record label. I mean, we were really, really pushing the envelope, you know. We, we didn't have a clue, but, you know. And, uh, yeah, and I'm just like, yeah, we could call the label Guns N' Roses. And he's like, yeah, you know. Then about two minutes went by, and he goes, he goes, hey, Izzy's not going to be in London anymore. Let's call him, and we, maybe we could just start a new band, and uh, we can call it Guns N' Roses. I'm like, yeah, that's a great name for a band, Guns N' Roses. So the Guns N' Roses thing happened when uh, the original bassist, this guy, Oli Bike, he quit the band, and uh, Duff McKagan came in, and at the time, his name was Duff Rose. And uh, then we changed the name from Guns N' Roses to Guns N' Roses, and it was magic. It was like, wow, that's a great band name. And, uh, you know, and then we took it from there. And then I lasted just under a year in that band. Um, things were taken off really quick. And Axel was still, you know, 21, 22 years old. And, you know, the shows became more of a, of a platform for him to, you know, give his opinions and thank people and motherfuck people and stuff like that. Eventually, we got in an argument, and uh, I departed. Now, when you guys were playing gigs, I mean, what was the Sunset Strip like then? I mean, it's, you know, you see it now. I didn't, I've lived out here for 15 years, you know, and, and I've seen yeah. you know, Dublin's closed and all these places closed and things closed, the House of Blues. But what, I mean, was the Strip, I mean, when you were guys were hanging out, was it... Was it like they say? Was it just like this crazy place that was magical? Uh, I mean, okay, I'll start from the kind of the beginning. Okay, so when L.A. Guns and Guns N' Roses were were starting, the whiskey was closed. There, there. So you know, basically, the Sunset Strip, what people consider the scene, was people hanging out at the Rainbow, and the Roxy was a place, you know, but it was definitely at the time. You know, like maybe Motley Crue would play there at that time, but everything was based around the Troubadour, which was on Santa Monica Boulevard. And so, what would happen is uh, you'd go to you know these gigs, which were all week long. It wasn't just a weekend thing. And then you know, kind of the older folks would go up to the Rainbow afterwards, and you know, find cocaine and you know do all the, the things you've heard about. Um, but by the time the whiskey reopened, um, that's when things really moved up there. Um, which was about, you know, 1986, really. Uh, 80, end of 85, 86, the Whiskey was open again. The Roxy now started having regular gigs. So, you know, especially on, on weekends, um, you would have, you know, these rival shows going on. You know, you could have like, you know, I don't know, Wasp at the Roxy and Rat going on at the Whiskey, you know, whatever. And then people would hang out, like I said, in the parking lot at the Rainbow and, mooch food off adults inside and, you know, kind of things like that. But to say it was magical, it was magical in the sense that it was pretty chaotic. I wouldn't say there was a, a huge amount of camaraderie amongst all the people and fans. And it seems to me it was a very, you know, uh, what's the word? Macho, you know. So you have all these macho men dressed up like women uh, <laughs> walking around, uh you know, and, and the chicks had the same hair as the guys and the ridiculous clothes and, like, things like that. Um, my group of people were were really more the kind of Steve Bader's um, leather 
kind of, kind of, I don't know. We were just more of that. And, um, you know, so it, it was, there was a lot of fights. You know, I remember fights, fist fights and petty arguments. And, you know, I mean, of course the women were, were, were unbelievable. They, they just loved all the guys. And, and so nobody ever really went hungry. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know, nobody, nobody was starving. Uh, and my guys were really responsible guys. You know, Axel and Izzy both worked with Tower Video on Sunset. Um, and, you know, we were more gypsy by choice than, you know, by situation. You know, I mean, uh, I'm not going to pretend that, that I, I was this poor kid on the street or any of us were. You know, I mean, I, uh, my grandma had a house that had an open door policy. My mother had a house that was an open door policy. So, you know, we were all pretty comfy. I mean, we didn't have any money. You know, I mean, we had just enough. But, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty kick-ass. Now, when you uh, went, after you, you restarted LA Guns again, I guess you said. Right, 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 right. Now, now, how did you find your lineups back then? Because it's not like now. Like now you can put something on Facebook or Craigslist or, and you can get all these people. How do you find the band? Because you, you started LA Guns, then you left. But was it, it was your band. Right. So how did you sit there? Did you bring the same guys back, or were those guys pissed at you, or how did you reassemble the troops or get a new group? Well, well I, I remember, you know, it, that's the benefit of having a music scene. You know what I mean? Really, is you know, when there's a music scene, that means that there's you know, every musician in town is trying to be hip and trying to fit into what's going on, and it, and it truly was a rock movement. It was great. So. Um, when Rob Gardner had left Guns N' Roses, Nicky Beat from uh, The Weirdos had auditioned, and I fell in love with this guy. I was just like, man, dude, you're not right for Guns N' Roses, but you know, if I ever do something else, you know, I'm going to call you, and I hope that you know, we could do something. And, and that happened. You know? So as soon as I was out of uh, Guns N' Roses, I got a hold of Nicky, and, and he was older than me. He was like 12 years older than me, and I'm like, hey, you, know, you want to do this something new and, and he's like yeah sure yeah yeah you're great man yeah i want to play with you yeah he's one of those kind of guys and so we actually uh within a few days him and i went to uh this ucla frat party that guns and roses was playing at and uh we saw these these identical twins uh who were mick cripps and robert cripps and uh nikki the the drummer he, he said he goes, hey, I bet one of those guys could play bass, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so he, he walks over and, and talks to him somehow, and, I, and then we go home, and then he calls me and goes, hey, you know, one of those guys, I'm not sure which one, you know, I got his number, his name's Mick, he's a guitar player, so you should call him and tell him he has to play bass. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to call him and tell him, and I did. You know, I said, I said, hey, you know, I'm this guy. Goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you are, blah, blah, blah. And he was fresh off the boat from England at the time. He was actually born in Adelaide, Australia, moved to England, moved to Orange County, went to high school in Orange County, and then moved to England. And so when he moved back to L.A., uh, he was fresh off the boat. He joined uh, what wasn't L.A. Guns yet. Again, uh, he joined up with me and Nikki. And uh, he played bass, you know, agreeably. And he had vision. This was a really cool thing about Mick, was that he was like an Izzy character, where, you know, limited a uh, limited virtuosity as a musician, but very adequate and very clever, and um, with a vision. And um, 
So I don't remember how we got the singer guy that we got at the time, but uh, you know we auditioned some guys or whatever, and uh, we had a band. And so the reason why we decided to call that band L.A. Guns, you know, versus the old band that was L.A. Guns and Guns and Roses, was because I had a hundred posters that were L.A. Guns posters, and uh, and we were all up at my grandma's house, and that's where the posters were. And uh, I said, well, we should just call the band L.A. Guns. You know, we got all these posters. And they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I already had a backdrop. So um, that's how really like what I consider the classic lineup of L.A. Guns started. And at the time, we were really, really uh, more of a, you know, New York Dolls, you know, Heartbreakers, uh, Steve Bader's Dead Boys, with slight hints of Aerosmith. And stuff like that. We were more of a snotty, you know, kind of punk rock band. I wouldn't call us punk rock band because, you know, punk rock bands, they're they're just limited and noisy and awesome. We weren't that. We were more advanced. Um, so that evolved. And we built a huge following here at home really quick, especially me coming straight out of Guns N' Roses where we had created a following. Um it enriched our scene, and that scene was what we called the screen scene, which was also part of the Sunset Strip scene, but it was more of, at the time, you would actually consider it alternative music. Um, you know, Jane's Addiction, Chili Peppers, um, and some bands like that, Jet Boy, um, Faster Pussycat. You know, we weren't quite meant for primetime TV. You know, we were almost there, but we were still snotty and, and said the F word a lot. Um, but that was the, the attraction, and uh, before I knew it, I mean, honestly, man, you know, we fired our singer who was addicted to heroin, and uh, we had a manager, Alan Jones, who was the uh, sax player in Amen Corner. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. But they, they were Pink Floyd's, pretty much their only support band in the late 60s, um, and when they were touring through Europe. So this guy, Alan Jones, very well connected, a Welsh guy. And he made things happen for us. You know, he uh, he knew what to do. All of a sudden, you know, we were on a very limited salary, and we had uh, Vince Ely from Psychedelic Furs producing our demos. And then uh, there was a decision to be made that we wanted to rock it up a bit. So we got uh, Jim Faraci, who was essentially the the engineer on. A couple rat records under Bo Hill, so he produced our rock demos, and he got us our our, our interest from A and M Records and from Polydor Records, and so we had a little teeny weeny bidding war. We had gotten Phil Lewis, who Alan Jones had known. And Phil Lewis was in a band called Girl, and uh, I was hip to Girl. Izzy loved Girl, so he hit me to that band and Phil Lewis. And I asked Alan, hey, do you know this Phil Lewis guy? And he's like, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. I go, well, I want him to sing for L.A. Gun. And he said, yeah, okay, maybe I can figure that out. And I really wanted to do it just to make, you know, Axel and Izzy jealous. Okay. I mean, that was, that was really, you know, being still barely 19 years old, I'm like, I'm going to get this great guy. You know what I mean? And... Uh, that really cemented like a, a, a really good camaraderie between L.A. Guns and Guns N' Roses, having Phil in the band, because everything at that point had become very legitimate. They had just gotten signed to Geffen. We ended up uh, doing a show at the, at the Troubadour on a Wednesday night, and uh, 
where you know Polydor was like, "Hey, don't sign with A and M. We need to see you one more time." They came down, and then we had a show that same weekend at the Whiskey. By the end of the weekend, we were signed to Polydor. Now, who who was writing all the songs back then? Was it you? Or was it collaborative? Or and who was or were you? Who was the songwriter? Well, it's it's always starts with a riff. You know what I mean? With with whatever I do, it's like, hey, singer guy, I got this. What do you got? You know, and then and I write music in a song structure, always starting out like you know an early Beatles arrangement or early Stones arrangement, meaning you know a little intro, which later on becomes the chorus, a verse, a chorus, a verse, a chorus, a bridge, a solo, and then chorus is out. Every song I've ever written starts out that way, and then I then I can navigate you know, the writer, the songwriter, the lyricist, through what I'm thinking, it's a pretty good process. I mean, it's the way, really, you know, most of the bands I like did it, you know, from Van Halen to Led Zeppelin, music's created, lyrics go over it, either the lyrics ruin the song or make the song amazing, it's, it's, there's nothing in between um, that way. So, um, that's how we did it, And but what will you do, I come in with a riff, the band would flush out an arrangement of just the music. So in the end, I mean, you know, although I'm writing the music ahead of time, it takes those other musicians to really put that chemistry and, and magic into it, and then the singer with the lyrics, you know, so everybody ends up getting credit. Is that so, <laughs> that's Jagger. That's that's my, my seven-year-old. Hey, Jagger, how you doing? We're, we're on Skype, not FaceTime. Uh, so. He's staring at you. <laughs> no, you guys are off of the video. Uh, so okay, so so you get you get this first record deal, and now yeah. what's that like? I mean, is it, are you excited? Are you are you nervous? Thinking, I hope it performs. I hope it does well. I mean, what's it go through your mind? Because you are very young guys. Yeah, I think I was by the time this was happening, I was twenty, and that's so young still. I mean, that's like you know, you're yeah. not even legal to drink in half the states. No, it, it, it was wild, and I was very confused. I didn't know what it meant exactly, other than we were going to go into a professional recording studio and record professionally. That's the only thing I thought about at that time. I didn't know what the process was going to be once we were done. You know, all, all I know is that I had a little bit more money and that I was in an air-conditioned studio eating bagels and fruit every morning. It was amazing. <laughs> and then... You know, taking all the time in the world to get the guitars right, and at that age, that's all I really cared about. I didn't care about the songs. You know, if the song didn't suck, I liked it. You know, I was like, "Oh, this is cool. Okay, right on. Where's my solo go? All right, let's do this." You know, um, so <clears throat> that was that. That was the beginning of what people would consider a professional career in music. You know, as being in the studio recording an album, and I had done some studio work already before that, um, but now I was doing my own stuff. And uh, it was it was incredible, you know. And once again, with that type of ego boost, you know, comes you know more women and more problems and, and all those things. And, and uh, you know, it was always a balance of that when I was younger, just crazy. Now, when the record gets done, what, is it accepted? Do you go on tour? What happens after you get the record done? And now all of a sudden, you're probably into the promotional machine, which is something that you. Never really went through it. I mean, you said, you know, it was all about you playing the guitar, getting the getting the riff, you know, making yeah. some cash, getting women. What was it like when that when it all of a sudden went from, you know, being when you had to do the show business, the music business 
yeah. side of it. What is that like, especially at your age? Because yeah. as I said, you're 20, 21. You're you're rock and roll over the album. I mean, everyone everyone well, wants think, that. I think I think what happened is I got very lucky and very unlucky at the same time because everything that I thought would happen happened, and so at that age, I figured this is going to be my life forever. You know, that, that this is the way it goes. There was no negatives to it at the time. You know, I didn't foresee us not, you know, just skyrocketing for the next, you know, 50 years of my life. You know, I thought, well, here we go. And, uh, you know, the interviews, I was in all the guitar magazines and we were in the teeny bopper magazines. And, and that was the biggest kick in the world was walking into Seven Eleven and spending an hour staring at yourself in a magazine. You know what I mean? It was like, wow, you know, because up till that time, it was Motley Crue and Rat and Wasp and all those in the in 7-Eleven. Like, someday I'm going to be in 7-Eleven. You know, it was more about that at my age than, you know, anything else. It was about, I'm famous, you know, and, um, and it was awesome. And it lasted for a very long time, and it was a very difficult job the first five years of having those L.A. Guns records out because... We did relentlessly tour. We, we headlined shows. We opened for every rock band you could imagine. And we had to be up at 7.30 in the morning every day to do interviews, which is brutal. You know, I don't care how old you are. Um, you know, especially when you're doing clubs on those tours, you know, you're getting to bed at 4.35 in the morning, waking up at 7.30, doing some interviews, getting on a bus, driving, sound, you know, it was, it was intense. It was, and... Uh, I did end up, by the time I was 25, I had malnutrition and agoraphobia, and that destroyed my nervous system completely, just from the activity. See, it's insane that stuff happens. Now, when you were touring, who were like some of the bands that you opened for that you were like, oh my God? You know, being a music fan, like you went, oh my God, I'm opening, we're opening for these guys. And what was that experience like? It, it was unbelievable. And, but then again, I took it for granted. You know what I mean? I was like, of course. But they were all my heroes. Our first tour was with Ted Nugent. Our second tour was with Cheap Trick. Our third tour was with ACDC. Our, third, our fourth tour was with Iron Maiden. Our fifth tour was with uh, Def Leppard in the round on the Hysteria tour. You know, so that was the first eighteen months of of LA Guns. You know, and our first record. You know, finishing off with a big, huge theater tour in Japan. You know, it was sold out every night. Doing thirty six bucks a head in merchandise. You know, it was just like wow. You know, it really. What? was headed right where it was supposed to go and it just kept getting bigger after that but that's when people start uh you know arguing and having entitlements and things like that you know that's what happened well what's it like going from playing clubs to these arenas with people that are there to see music because you know they're gonna anyone you go to a band a band you love that's a cheap trick or you know acdc you right. know that the band is going to have a good opening act, and you're going to be there to support it. It's not like if you sit there and go, oh, right. like I saw Tommy Two-Tone open up for Tom Petty in Philadelphia. I'm like, well, you know what? We'll just hang in the parking lot until <laughs> we know Jenny Jenny's going to come on because we don't give a crap about the other songs. But right. what's it like when the, all of a sudden you go from a small club to a stadium? And like even in Japan, he said, like, I mean, those fans are rabid. Yeah, it, it, it was uh, very confidence-building. You know, particularly the ACDC crowd. Uh, it was such a great fit. Um, and they loved us, and they took us out again after that first one. Um, you know, and that was the first arena 
tour we did was with ACDC because at the time Cheap Trick and Nugent they were doing theaters and so it was a nice build up going from clubs to theaters to arenas and I remember walking up the stairs at the Portland Maine Civic Center Arena on the first um, ACDC tour um, I had never experienced nervousness like that in my life just for 30 seconds you know standing on the stairs the lights go down you hear the crowd just absolutely make the loudest sound you've ever heard in your life and then we just went out there for 45 minutes and just tore the place apart you know and i remember walking down the stairs and going that wasn't so bad <laughs> you know that that was really the beginning of just like let's do this you know i mean and being aggressive at you know 21 years old man it was the perfect thing it was either that or basketball and i definitely wasn't tall enough to play basketball now, now, when you said you started on getting some problems with the band and, and egos and stuff like that, how do you keep something together and how do you deal with when you have to throw a member out of the band? I mean, how does that all happen? Because L.A. Guns has been around for a long time and I know you, know, you look yeah. in, your, in your bio, you know, there's been some breaks, but when did the problems start? I mean, after that first album, how long till egos started clashing and things had to change? Well, I, I, I think that Ultimately, the egos, you know, we all dealt with each other in different ways. And I don't think the egos ever broke up the band, per se, because, you know, from an artistic point of view, I was always able to do things outside of L.A. Guns to satisfy different musical tastes that I had. Um, so, I mean, maybe a tiny bits of animosity were created, but it was really more about just really being burnt out from the road and stuff like that. We'd come home, we'd take a break, we'd write, we'd record, and then I got malnutrition and didn't want to leave the house. And uh, so we did our fourth record, which is called Vicious Circle, and I was literally, would only go into the studio at night and record the stuff. And we had the, the studio in Santa Monica rented out for a year. We just paid for it for a year. So we'd just have a creative space. And, uh, you know, the other guys were really having fun with drugs, and, I, and that was not ever my, my bag. So, you know, they were doing their thing. I was doing my thing, which my thing was basically sitting at home with a four-track tape recorder in a room, you know, for a year. And then, you know, we finished the record. We went out on tour, and things had really subsided. You know, this was, uh, I think, 1994. And we were back to doing clubs, and they weren't all sold out. And uh, at the end of that tour, uh, Mick and Kelly, they, who's the, Kelly was a bass player, they, Kelly didn't want to do it anymore because he wanted to play arenas and he wanted to be a rock star, and that was cool. You know, like, we get it. You know, I mean, now it's, now it's really hard work. And Mick, who was always more of a blue-collar, you know, sensible man, you know, he, he left too. Um, and so it was uh, left with me and this guy Steve Riley and, and uh, Phil Lewis. Um, and Phil, I don't remember. Oh, Phil had gotten a divorce um, that year, and he just wanted to take a long break. <laughs> so it was me and Steve left there holding the bag, and we just got guys and we, you know, did albums. You know, went in different directions and stuff like that. And then fast forward to 2000, uh, Cleopatra Records wanted to do a re-recorded Greatest Hits record with the original lineup, and we all agreed to do that. And we did that, and we agreed to tour, 
we went out and toured, and it was the same old, same old. You know, there was no excitement for rock of, from our genre at that time. You know, so I mean, we were playing to three, four hundred people a night, but it just wasn't capturing the magic. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't an amazing time. It was a good time, but it wasn't an amazing time. Um, so. Steve and I continued on from there. You know, we uh, kept doing stuff. And then by 2002, we were opening for bands that I thought put L.A. Guns in a bad light. Um, and there was no way in hell we should have been supporting these things. We should have continued doing our own club tours and, you know, being rock solid. And Phil was back in the band. And um, we did this one tour... And before the tour, I had met up with Nikki Six, and we wanted to do um, something brand new. Motley Crue was on break, and uh, so we did this band, Brides of Destruction, and I told the guys, look, man, I need to do something about our profile and not, you know, pull us out of this rut. Excuse me one second. Are you guys? Jagger? Where's your manner? I'm sorry about that. That's all right. Um... <laughs> So we, we put this band, Brides of Destruction, together. I told the guys in L.A. Guns, do whatever you want. I'm going to be back in two years. I, you know, I got to pull this out of this rut. And then a bunch of really bad stuff went down. I had found out that you know a bunch of money wasn't paid to all of the band members from a band member who had taken over business in the band. And at that point, as far as I was concerned... You know, I was done with L.A. Guns. And then I had to go out and do my own little versions of L.A. Guns for a while, you know, pretty much just to pay the rent, you know, just to get by. And uh, as time went on, um, just more as a solo kind of guy, uh, things started going really well. And I started figuring out how to tour and how to make records and how to do things that had more meaning um, while pulling in enough cash to really have a good life. And then you fast forward to today, and my solo career is really healthy. And um, next year, Phil and I, well, we're going to have a, an album out next year on Frontiers. It's going to be an L.A. Guns record. Um, and the writing process is pretty badass right now. So uh, it just keeps rolling. It just keeps going. It's, it's amazing. Now, how did you overcome the agoraphobia? Because that seems like something that would be big, and then you said you're going back on a road. And it's yeah. something that from you, you know, you go from playing in front of crowds, and then right. you don't want to leave your house, and mal yeah. malnutrition probably makes you weak and your mind weaker. But how do you, how do you decide, figure out, you know, what is making me agoraphobic, and how do you break that pattern, especially when your life is... Yeah, I mean, true, you love playing and writing and jamming right. on a guitar, but a big part of your life, which what's the best thing about being a musician is getting that crowd going crazy when you just nail a guitar solo. How did you overcome that? I mean, was there a process? Did you have to go to therapy or what happened? Well, I mean, it's really, you know, my life has been a bunch of puzzles, you know, and with the agoraphobia, uh, at, you know, when I first, when we finished that fourth record, it was like, hey, you guys got to go play. And I was terrified. And it wasn't about the audiences. It wasn't about playing on stage at that point. Basically just about leaving the house. It was about going into, into airports um, where there's just tons of people around, you know, big open spaces where there's no safe zone. You know, I mean, that's what I kind of boiled it down to. And so I really 
started being able to deal with it mentally because it, it's like you had said, it's a pattern, you know? And so, um, when I get real busy, the agoraphobia seems to subside a lot. And, you know, then I'm on a routine and I just go along with the routine and every step of the routine is a safe zone. Um, for the first couple of years after 94, I would have two sips of Jack Daniel before I go on stage. That was my ritual. And it didn't even matter if I actually swallowed the whiskey. It got to the point where I just touched the bottle to my lips. It was that psychological. So after uh, the tour we did in 2000, still agoraphobic, but dealing with it the best I could, um, now I had this new band with, with Nikki Six, and we had to fly to um, New York to do press before our record had come out, and I didn't want to go, you know, so it was very, I had to spill the beans, and uh, I had to tell Nikki, like, hey, bro, I can't go in an airport, I'll lose my mind and freak out and run back to the car and drive home and get in bed and turn the lights off and the air conditioning on, and, that, and that'll be it. So he's like, oh, I get it. You know, he goes, I get it. All right, you know, don't worry about it. So... He goes to New York with a the singer. They do the press. And um, what, did, what did he do? Okay, so now we have to tour. The record's coming out. And I'm in this very cushy, comfortable environment from going from my house to Nikki's house to our rehearsal studio, which is also a recording studio. That was my triangle of safety. And uh, so one day before rehearsal, Nikki calls. And he goes, he goes hey, I'm going to pick you up early. And, uh, and I'll drive you to her. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So we get in his car, and uh, we're driving the wrong way. We're driving towards his house. I'm like, I'm like, you're going the wrong way. He goes, I left something at the house. You know, I got, well, it'll just take us a half hour out of the way. I'm like, okay, no problem. So we show up to this little parking lot with all these trees and these bungalows. I'm like, where the hell are we? He goes, we're going to the doctor. I'm like, Oh, man, what do you mean? He goes, we're going to get you on good drugs. And I'm like, I go, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to take any drugs, any medications. He goes, nah. And he you know, had like a five-minute talk with me. We went in. I was fine when I went in. I thought I was going to have an anxiety attack, but I didn't. Um, you know, they took my blood pressure and all that stuff and weighed me and said, what's the problem? <laughs> and I go, well, I'm agoraphobic. My dad's agoraphobic. My mom has anxiety. You know, is it genetic? And they go, eh, probably not. But do they take anything that makes it better? And I said, I said, well, they both take Paxil. I don't know if it makes them better, but they both take it. They put me on Paxil, and for 10 years I took Paxil, and I was absolutely fine. It was uh, an incredible thing that, you know, you could put this magic pill in your body and feel sick to, like you're going to die for eight days, and then on the ninth day you wake up and you feel like you're 16 years old. It was incredible. Um, but it took a long time for me to figure out that that was probably not the way to deal with something. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It was like, maybe be, maybe there's a reason why all the men in my family were alcoholics. You know what I mean? Um, you know, that's the way they dealt with it. They all died at 66, literally 66 years old. Um, so when I was in Las Vegas for the first year, which was really 2014, um, I decided I was going to go off the Paxil because I had a very cush gig living in a hotel that was attached to the theater, which meant basically 
I didn't ever have to go outside or deal with any humanity other than the fun of doing the show and watching TV all day. So that made sense. But the thing was, is coming out Paxil is a pretty hardcore thing. You know, I mean, it's you have strange, mild, you know, side effects and withdrawals for years. You know, because it completely changes your your uh, whatever your controls your nervous system. You know, it lubricates it. That's how they describe it. Makes it run smooth. But when you decide to stop taking it, well, then all the lubrication comes off like you know one tiny bit at a time. You know, I would turn to the left and I would feel like a whole surge of electricity shoot through my body for like a year. Wow, it was very tough. Um, so then you get to the point now where I still I'm still agoraphobic, you know. But like I said, when I'm when I'm busy, it seems to really subside. It seems to be more manageable, and I've been dealing with it for years. So um, you know, I do the breathing exercises and stuff like that, and and I do okay, you know. Now, did you ever have any side effects when you were on stage, when you were getting off it, like when you were in Vegas? Did anything just like did you ever be on stage and just like have a, one of those moments where you're like. You know, we all have those moments sometimes where we're like, what the, what the hell's going on? Even like if you're driving, you may sit there and oh, go, yeah. wait yeah, a second, I mean, where am I? See, those, those things that you're describing, those are completely normal to me every day of okay. life. So, so the things that, that do stand out is this electricity thing that happens. Um, I would jump up in the air like a Van Halen split kind of thing. I would come down, and as soon as I would jolt on the ground, that surge would go, all the way through my body, you know, from the tips of my toes at to the top of my brain to the tips of my fingers. Now that, if you're a drug addict, would probably be the most awesome thing you could ever experience because it was just like waking up my nervous system when I would do that. And I wasn't freaked out by it because I knew that it was part of the process of coming off of, you know, the, the big pharmaceutical company's solution to everything. And then it was leaving me. Um, so that was really about it. You know, the only episode I've had since you know and this was uh, I had gone off Paxil before like for a week here and there and stuff like that but I was in Spain in a great mood in a great space and I had drank you know like three cups of you know cappuccino smoked a half a pack of cigs you know before like 10 in the morning and then decided I was going to run up this hill to go get a sim card for my phone I had a little anxiety attack doing that, and I just turned around and went back to the hotel, and I was fine. But um, so far, you know, in the last five years, I've been able to uh, keep that under control in, in the, when those kind of things start. So it's mental. It really is. At the end of the day, it's mental. Now, now through your career touring, what are some of your favorite places you've played? And, like, I mean, I've heard, you know... Rio de Janeiro. I mean, I've heard these places, just the crowds in South America are crazy. What are some of those places that you were like, man, this is what it's all about, and this is just kick-ass? Well, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like when I look back, you know, I mean, I look forward and I look back. When I look back, the things that are that are, are interesting is that it's been a, a very, you know, when they say legend, a legend is things on a map, and that's exactly what I've done. I've done things on a map. So, you know, I can look at South America, Argentina, Brazil uh, as the most manic, out-of-control, loud, rabid experiences, chaotic, you know, um, which is fun. You know what I mean? It's really fun because, you know, then I just walk back to my 
dressing room and I'm by myself. So, you know, there's a, a safe spot. It's amazing. But then there's other factors, too. You know, like, you know, playing in Europe in the fall, you know, where it's 60 degrees every day with a gentle breeze and, you know, the people are very much more relaxed and settled in, but just as appreciative. Uh, and, you know, the, the beautiful architecture throughout Europe and, and things like that. You know, that's, you know, that's my favorite thing. Um, I'm not big on heat being, you know, an anxious person. So, you know, when I'm in Vegas, uh, I become very agoraphobic because I stay in my room the whole time. It's 114 degrees outside, so I don't do much there. But the benefit of that is that when I do come home um, and it's 90 degrees in L.A., it feels cold out and comfortable and amazing. You know, but, it's, but the best crowds in the world are the crowds that are in the world. You know, they're, they all have a different characteristic and, and they're all very appreciative. And, um, you know, it, it's, that's the addiction. You know, it's getting there and doing your thing and turning people on. Now, now, what made Rock Vault so great? I mean, what made it such a good time? Just because it was a bunch of pros, you guys just got to have fun. I mean, was it like, it must have just been fun. I mean, you know, what made that a fun time for you when you go back and you just have a blast? Well, I mean, I did it last night, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's always fresh. Um, you know, the thing about it is, you know, for all intensive purposes, for the band, it's a tribute band. But at the same time, it is the most world-class tribute show um, from an era of music, which I don't care if you're 20 to 80, this is the music that's been on the radio, you know, for the past 30, 40 years. So, you know, all the musicians are world class. The production is world class. The theaters that we do it in are world class. And, you know, I play Stairway to Heaven legally. You know what right. I mean? Like, you're just not allowed to do that. You know, I don't care if you're in a Zeppelin tribute band. Everybody just rolls their eyes when you go into Stairway to Heaven. But when we do Stairway to Heaven in this show and, and Hotel California and stuff like that, it's so grand. It's so big. It, it sounds so amazing. And the audience is just, just very captive. So on one hand, reading the Rock Vault is the most professional production I've ever seen on any tour. I mean, and I've done, you know, in the in the round with Def Leppard where they had this you know, state-of-the-art, you know, beyond quadraphonic sound, you know, best tour managers catering. It's not as great as Rock Vault. You know, Rock Vault is something that doesn't move. So it's like you're touring in the same place every day, um, which is a really a great way to do it if we could sustain it. Um, you know, so I'm really curious to see where we're going to go from here because we were at the LVH for over a year and we were at the Tropicana for just over a year and now we got to find another spot to do it. You know, so does it have a, does, does it get a good crowd all the time? It does. It gets, the thing is, is it gets five to 700 people a night, but we keep playing 1200 seat theaters, you know, so in these theaters, um, they have curtains at the back. So it, it always seems to be packed but it's really not um at the lvh we used to give away free tickets and, and so there was an appearance of a lot more tickets sold um at the tropic canon we're not allowed to do that and the crowd has been sustained at the same size so you know the show does good the production team and the investors they do all right and uh you know but it's 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 vegas you know it's it's what you would imagine it to be if you've never seen it you know what i mean like the stage volume 
is like a perfect 97 decibels. You know what I mean? It's it's just all of those things. Now, the, the new LA, you said you're writing the new LA guns. Right. Now, do you think you're, you're, all the writing has changed because you've matured? Do you think, I mean, over the years, you've grown in the writing and as a musician? I mean, what makes, it, what makes you so excited about it that, you know, you just said it's, it's, you're doing some really great stuff? Well, I think that, you know, Phil and I haven't made a record since, uh, God, since 2000. You know, it's been 16 years now since we've done um, anything L.A. Guns related together. He's been in L.A. Guns the whole time. I haven't. Um, so, you know, for it to come to this, where we're going to do it this way, um, I have a really good understanding of what L.A. Guns is. You know, I have a really good understanding of why those people bought those records and what's exciting about it. And then you add 16 more years of, of writing songs and scoring movies and doing all that stuff. That's stuff we didn't talk about in this interview, but it's really not that important. But my my vision and uh, the ability to be subjective and a little less self-indulgent, but still being able to create something that's very over-the-top and very epic and very musical is uh, very clear. So in the writing process, I'm, I'm just, you know, we have this great technology, you know. Um, I write and record these things, send them to Phil, and then he just goes, wow, you know. So that's a good start. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. It's like, okay. So, I mean, essentially, you're going to get an L.A. Guns album that is going to have elements of the things that people did like about L.A. Guns in the late 80s and early 90s, which is a hard-hitting rock band. But now it's going to be... Uh, the only way I can describe it is an added epicness about it. Um, something that, that'll be a little bit intangible, um, where you're getting what you expect, but there's going to be extra. And, you, you know, you're going to psychologically just be like, wow. But then again, I mean, I mean, in reality, we're going to sell under 50,000 records worldwide. So knowing that... Um, specifically go for the the core fan base you know we're not trying to get a radio hit or be current because that would be a ridiculous notion that's like the temptations coming out with an album and saying oh here's our hit right you know there's just there's no reality in that statement um so you know but it's it's uh quality control is everything at, at any time you create anything you know so that's where we're at right now now will you tour with it yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, but I can't talk about that yet because uh, uh, soon there's going to be some, you know, good announcements, some big runs um, uh, starting overseas. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is it's still very fresh, you know, just the ink is still wet on the record contract, on the touring contract and stuff like that. But to answer the, answer the question, yes, we will be touring. Are you, are, now are you guys playing at Irvine Meadows in September? Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, I believe that's just billed as uh, Tracy Guns and Phil Lewis. Now, how how many songs do you play? Because like the lineup, there's like eighty bands. I mean, how do you cram so much great music into? I mean, is this, how are the sets designed when you when the, those concerts are there? Well, the way that I do these festivals these days is I headline the second stage always. Um, if you if your ego says you got to be on the main stage, that means you're going on at four in the afternoon and you get a twenty minute set. Um, I don't want to. I don't even wake up till then. Right. Uh, uh, I don't want to be in the sun. 
and I have songs that are 20 minutes long with LA Guns. So it makes no sense to do those things. And that's something that I'm trying to change um, the face of LA Guns again, you know, because the, the way that they've been running the show, they're still opening for bands they shouldn't be opening for. They're just, you know, and it's not Phil, it's, it's another entity. Um, and, you know, I think that our, our, our purpose for doing this is to show the catalog of music more than anything, you know what I mean? And uh, the purpose to put out a, a, a new record is to, you know, ensure that whatever the legacy of L.A. Guns is, that the integrity lies within the songwriters, and that's Phil and I. And um, so every step that we take together uh, might be a slow step, but it'll be a bigger step, and it'll be steps that are forward. Um, so like at Irvine Meadows, you know, we'll go on at probably 8 o'clock on the second stage, which is a very nice, big, comfy stage, um, and we'll do a 50-minute set. You know, we can get basically the fan favorites or, you know, hit songs, for lack of a better term, we can get those into 50 minutes. You know, we can do a couple of the epics, and then we can do the Battle of the Janes and stuff like that, and it'll be a great experience. But, you know, it's all about perception in this business, and I don't care if you're at the bottom of the rung or the top of the rung. You have to you have to show yourself at your best. Now, now, do you still jam around town? Do you do like the Lucky Strike or the Whiskey? Do you do any, do any of those gigs? Um, I I did uh, Lucky Strike. I had a band last year with Rudy Sarzo called Gunzo, where we were doing the catalog of his records and L.A. Guns stuff. So you know, we were doing Ozzy and Dio and White Snake and L.A. Guns, and that was killer. We did a world tour behind that, and we did play at Lucky Strike one night. Um, and then I'm also a counselor at Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, and part of that is playing uh, the final nights are at uh, Lucky Strike and then the Whiskey on the Sunday, which I'm doing next week. I'm doing Judas Priest. Okay. Uh, um, you know, so, like, you know, there's all these activities that go on. So, you know, I'm busier now at 50 years old than I have ever been in my life, you know, and do I like it? Kind of. Right. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I'm a grip. I'll tell you what, I'm a hell of a guitar player now. You know, I mean, that's, that's, and that was, I think that was always the goal. You know what I mean? And so, that's, that's what counts. I want to, I want to, I want to thank you for coming on, man. See, I, I love talking music. That's, that was an hour. Time flies by. How do, how, how do people today, what, what's your Twitter? Give all your info. Uh, just, you know, look, it all starts at, you know, Facebook slash Tracy Guns, Instagram. Tracy Guns, Twitter, Tracy Guns. That's a T-R-A-C-I-I-G-U-N-S. Two I's, one N. So people, go follow Tracy Guns on Twitter. And while you're at it, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have, God, 537 episodes up on there. Um, you can email Amazing. me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want me to get on the show. You know, I, you know, I get musicians, I get writers, I get TV show creators, directors. Do that. Uh, Instagram and Words with Friends, no lie, is Cooper Talk One. Play me. I love to play. And don't forget my other website. When I went to my health problems, I wrote the cookbook, uh, Stop the Salt. It's a low sodium cookbook, uh, 120 recipes. They're all easy, people. You sit there, there's no pictures. So when you get it, because guys, a lot of times guys will look at a cookbook and they get intimidated by the pictures. No pictures, 120 recipes, easy ingredients. You don't have cumin. Don't worry. You don't need cumin. You can go to StopTheSalt.com and get it. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, but if you get it from StopTheSalt.com, 
I make more money and I'll even sign it for you and I'll send it to you personally. So people do me a favor, follow Tracy Guns. Go go Google, listen to some music, get the rock on, you know, see where they're gonna play. Follow that and keep following me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.